0: I'd like for you to open your Bibles, if you would please, to begin to the eighty-fifth Psalm, Psalm eighty-five, and we're going to read about four verses, I guess, and and then we're gonna then we're gonna go over to First Samuel, and I want to share with you a, a very specific event that took place in the life of Israel at the beginning of Samuel's uh, time. With Israel. But in Psalm 85, um, uh, and we're going to begin reading in verse number four, uh, the Bible says, "'Turn us, O God, of our salvation, and cause thine anger toward us to cease. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations?' Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. I will hear what the Lord, what God the Lord will speak, for He will speak peace unto His people and to His saints. But let them not turn again to folly. Uh, Less than a month, Doctor Comfort will be here, and we will uh, begin a, a revival. And uh, that's always an exciting time. Uh, I love Dr. Comfort, and I'm looking forward to hearing him preach. And uh, and I'm praying that the Lord will do some great things in our hearts. But I want to talk to you this morning about the focus of revival. What is it that we need to be thinking about as we prepare for this special meeting? Um, this passage... Uh, written uh, from the heart of uh, speaking about the the Lord's dealing with the people of Israel Uh, and he says, turn us, O God of our salvation, and cause thine anger toward us to cease. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? And then it asks this question, wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? I think it's very clear from this that we need to remember that revival does not come from a meeting we have. Revival comes from the Lord. And, uh, and it's whether or not God chooses to meet with us, and I believe he will, and whether he chooses to speak to our heart, and then it has to do with the choices that we make. Now I want you to turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 1. First Samuel chapter one. Um, most of us are very familiar with uh, the first three or four chapters of the book of First Samuel. Uh, the book is about the ministry of Samuel to the nation of Israel, first and second Samuel, and the events that transpired in the nation of Israel during his time on this Earth. And uh, and you know the the how how the book begins. Hannah uh, did not have any children, and she wanted very badly to have a son. And she had prayed and asked the Lord to give her a son. And a son was born to Hannah. And Hannah took him. Verse twenty four. She when she had weaned him, she took him up with her and three bullocks and one apha flower and a bottle of wine and brought him into the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. And uh, verse uh, verse 27, she said, For this child I prayed, and the Lord hath given me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore have also I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he liveth, he shall be lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. So uh, Hannah was saying, I've, This son has been born to me. I'm thankful for him. God has answered my prayer. And my desire is to give him. To the Lord, to let the Lord use him. That's, that's my goal in the life of Samuel. Uh, chapter 2 talks about her rejoicing over what God has done. And uh, then the middle of the, 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 the chapter deals with the sons of Eli. And we're going to talk about them a little more in a moment. And then in verse 18 it says, But Samuel ministered before the Lord Being a child, you do understand that children can serve the Lord. Sometimes we get the idea in our mind that you have to be a certain age to be able to serve the Lord, but children can give themselves to the Lord as children, and they can serve the Lord, and the Lord can use children. Um, There are many illustrations I could give of children that God has used to bring their parents to the Lord. Or to bring their other other relatives or or adults to the Lord. God can use children, and God used Samuel, and um, and so then we come down to chapter three. Uh, we'll get back to some of what is is said in chapter two in a moment, but we come to chapter three, and the Bible says, "And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli." And the word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. You understand what that means? People didn't know much. They didn't have much opportunity to learn. They didn't have a book that they could read that was living like our Bible is, where they could learn everything they needed to know about how to serve the Lord. They did have uh, writings of the of, of Moses and that kind of thing, I believe, but but they didn't have a Bible like we have. Nor did they have the Spirit of God living in their heart. One of the greatest benefits that we have as New Testament believers is the fact that God resides in our heart. We don't have to go look for Him somewhere. We don't have to go to a temple. We don't have to be in church to know that God's presence is with you because He lives in the heart of a believer, And it's kind of interesting that it says the word of the Lord was precious in those days. You ever, you ever wonder how precious the word of the Lord is today? Even in churches, is the word of the Lord precious to you? Is it important for God to speak to your heart? Is it important for you to learn what God has to say to you, what God wants to do in your life? It ought to be precious to us. And I think in some cases it's gotten to the place where it's kind of common and we don't care as much for it as we should. Verse number two, it came to pass at that time when Eli was laid down in his place and his eyes began to wax dim that he could not see. And there the lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was and Samuel was laid down to sleep that the Lord called Samuel and he answered, here and I, and he ran unto Eli and said, here am I. For thou callest me. And he said, I called not. Lie down again. And he went and lay down. And the Lord called yet again Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here am I, for thou didst call me. And he answered, I called not, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, neither was the word of the Lord yet revealed unto him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am. For thou didst call me, and Eli perceived that the Lord had called the child. Therefore, Eli said unto Samuel, Go lie down, and it shall be, if he call thee, that thou shalt say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. So Eli, though he was old, and though he was not a great judge, he was a judge of Israel. And though his sons were not what they should be, we'll, we'll talk about that again in a moment too, he had enough sense to understand that God was speaking to Samuel. And so he said to him, go and lay back down and listen, and if God speaks again, say to him, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. So verse number 10, the Lord came and stood and called another time, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel answered, speak. For thy servant heareth. And then in verse 11, Samuel gets the first message that God gave to him for the people of Israel. Now, you read through First and Second Samuel, and you'll read many messages that God gave to Samuel for the people of Israel. Some of which the people of Israel heeded, and some of which they rejected. But in this case, God spoke to Samuel, and he was listening very carefully. And here's what God said to him. Verse 11. And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do a thing in Israel at which both the ears of everyone that heareth it shall tingle. In that day I will perform against Eli all things which I have spoken concerning his house. When I begin, I will also make an end. That's a scary thing to hear the Lord say. I'm going to do some things that are going to make people sit up and take notice. And when I get started, I'm not going to stop until it's done. I'm going to not just start, I'm going to bring it to an end. Verse 13, For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knoweth, because his sons made themselves vile and he restrained them not. Now, Eli uh, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were misusing, mis uh, t- taking the offerings and using them for their own benefit. There were a lot of things going on and God was not pleased with that. And the sad thing is that Eli knew about it and did not take steps to have it corrected. He did speak to them, but he didn't do anything to make it better, to get rid of the problem. And so... um, Verse number 14, the Lord continues, Therefore I have sworn unto the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be purged with sacrifice nor offering forever. Their sins were paid for with the sacrifices and the offerings. So this, this 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 won't end that way. Verse 15, and Samuel lay until the morning and opened the doors of the house of the Lord and Samuel feared to show Eli the vision. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son? And he answered, Here am I. And he said, What is the thing that the Lord hath said unto thee? I pray thee, hide it not from me. God do so to thee, and more also, if thou hide anything from me of all the things that he said unto thee. How would you like to be in Samuel's shoes? Eli says, God spoke to you last night. I want to know what he said. And Eli's thinking, I don't want to have to tell him this. I don't want to have to tell him what God said. God said he's going to judge your house. God said he's going to to judge your your sons because of, of what they did. And he's going to judge you because you didn't do anything about it. That would be a terrible thing to be responsible to tell someone. But you know what? God was setting... Getting, Sam, getting Samuel established in his new role. Because that's what Samuel did. That's what he was supposed to do. He was a prophet. And God was using him to give a message to someone who needed to hear it. And, um, and so in verse number 18, the Bible says, And Samuel told him every whit, and hid nothing from him. And he said, Eli said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seemeth him good. Verse 19, Samuel grew. The Lord was with him and did let none of the words fall to the ground. And Israel from Dan, even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Now at that point in our Bibles, the chapter changes. It goes from chapter 3 to chapter 4 but the first sentence of chapter 4 actually goes with chapter 3 the chapter divisions are not inspired they were added for for clarification but they that that that's not a good a good place to break it you'll see why verse number four verse number one of chapter four says and the word of Samuel came to all Israel that's it and then the thought line changes because from that place until chapter 7 and verse number 3, Samuel is not mentioned again. All of this that is in between chapter 4 verse 1 and the second sentence and chapter 7 and verse number 3 is an account of how God dealt with Israel because of Eli and his son's sins. And that's the point of the message this morning. Notice in verse number two, verse number one of of chapter four, we'll we'll start with the second sentence. It says, now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle and pitched beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines pitched in Apheg. And the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel, and when they joined battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines, and they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. Now that's the beginning to a very, very uh, 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 an interesting story, but a significant story in the life of Israel and how God dealt with them because of their sin. The Philistines were Israel's perpetual enemy. They fought with them over and over again. Do you have any perpetual enemies? Have you ever known anyone that you didn't particularly care for and it seemed like there was nothing you could do to make peace and every time they came up you know you you had a battle or whatever you know just just they just just seemed to be natural natural enemies well for us, obviously Satan is our enemy sin is our enemy and our flesh is our enemy we know those three things are true and um and uh, but but the Philistines were, were Israel's enemy. They fought with them over and over and over again. But they weren't just Israel's enemy. They were the people that God used to chasten Israel. You ever stop to think about some of those people that we don't like or some of the situations we don't care for? Maybe God would, is using them to try to get us to put our focus back where it needs to be. We have a tendency to spend our time focusing on that which we don't like. All of the negative stuff, the, the, the problems, people that do things that we don't like, situations we find ourselves in that we don't care for, and we would we would prefer it be different, and we spend our time and energy focusing on those things and feeling angry or disappointed or unhappy. Because of what's going on. And we don't deal with what may have caused some of those issues. And often, the issues that we have are the result of things that we've done to to create the situation. Well, beginning in verse number three, we have Israel dealing with a situation that they don't like. I want you to notice four things about what goes on. We're going to look through it very quickly. First of all, I want you to notice their crisis. The Philistines were beating them. I mean, the Bible says that they they were smitten before the Philistines and they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. Look at verse number 3. When the people were coming to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Why has God let the Philistines beat us today? That was their question and their crisis. They, they needed to figure a way to finally get victory over the Philistines. And there was a, there was a, a challenge there. They didn't like where they were, and they needed to, to take care of that. So they made a choice. The crisis led to their, they, they, they thought about it, they talked about it, they made a choice. So what was the choice that they made? Look at verse 3 again. When the people were coming to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Here's their choice. This is what they decided to do. Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. So they got together, the elders did, and they sat out and they talked. They said, All right. Uh, we're, not, we're not making much progress in our attempt to defeat the Philistines. We, we need something that's going to provide us some help. We've got to have some aid. So what do we do? And somebody who thought that they had a bright idea said, i got an idea. Let's, let's go get the ark. The ark is power in the ark. Let's get the ark and bring it back. And uh, and the ark will save us out of the hand of our enemies. That's what it says very clearly. That's what they thought. So they made a choice, and they went and got the ark. Look at verse number four. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring them thence the ark from thence the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth between the cherubims. And two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. That's interesting. The guys who were the cause for the judgment were there at the place where they were going to get the ark to bring it back, and the ark was going to provide aid for them. Now, the ark in the Old Testament was the place where God abode on this earth. It was in, in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, or the, holy, the most holy place, and, and the only one who was allowed to go in there was the high priest. And he had to make sure that he had confessed every sin. He would offered sacrifices for every sin that he committed so that when he went in there, he was holy. They put a rope around his ankle and they put bells around the bottom of his robe so that if he went in there and he was not worthy to be in there, God struck him dead, the bells would cease ringing and they would know it, was, it had happened So they, and they'd pull him back out with the rope because nobody else could go in there except the high priest and it was the place where god dwelt on top of the ark sat the mercy seat where the where the blood was 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 offered as a sacrifice for the sins of the people once a year it was a very very sacred piece of furniture the bible says when israel tried to move it back to jerusalem right after david became king that they didn't david did not find out how to do it and he did it the same way. We're going to see they moved it here, and uh, and and it was on a cart. And the ox stumbled, and the cart began to shake, and the ark began to fall off. And Uzzah who was who was there to protect it, reached forth to steady the ark, and God struck him dead immediately because you're not you cannot touch the ark, and live. It was a a sacred piece of furniture. It it had to do. It represented the very presence of God in their midst. So they said, let's go get the ark, and we'll bring the ark, and the ark will save us. That's interesting what happened. Verse number five, the Bible says, When the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, then all Israel shouted with a great shout, so that the earth rang again. And verse six, when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What meaneth the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? And they understood that the ark of the Lord was coming to the camp. The Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. They said, Woe unto us, for there hath not been such a thing heretofore. Woe unto us, who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. And then they began to encourage one another, Be strong and quit yourselves like men, O ye Philistines, that ye be not servants unto the Hebrews as they have been unto you. Quit yourselves like men and fight. So they're ready for the battle. Israel's got the ark, and they said, we're in good shape. The ark is here. They, the, the, the ark is going gonna, is gonna to secure our victory. And the Philistines were saying, man, they got the ark, and they were scared to death. But the battle occurred, and what happened? What were the consequences? We see the crisis, we see their choice, what was the th- what, what what happened then? What were the consequences of this choice that they made? We're not going to read all of what happened for the sake of time, but look down at verse seventeen. The messenger comes back to tell Eli what happened in the Bible in the battle, and he gives a very a very clear summary of everything that happened. So look at verse number seventeen. The Bible says the messenger answered and said. Israel is fled before the Philistines. First thing, Israel didn't fare too well. They had to run. They've, they've gotten out of, away, from, away from the Philistines. They're running from the Philistines. And there hath also been a great slaughter among the people. The Philistines did a lot of damage, and a lot of people died. And thy two sons also, Hophni and Phineas, are dead. And the ark of God is taken. Israel's running. They've been slaughtered. Hophni and Phinehas have been dead, have been killed, and the ark is taken. That's what I would say a pretty sound defeat. Israel did not win the battle. The ark did not give them a victory. In fact, the ark was taken by the Philistines. The next consequence found in verse 18, it came to pass when he made mention of the ark of God that he, Eli, fell from off the seat backward by the side of the gate and his neck broke, and he died. For he was an old man and heavy and he had judged Israel 40 years. Eli died as a consequence of the choice they made. And then the final the final nail in The defeat is found in verses 19 through 22. Eli's daughter-in-law, Phinehas' wife, was with child. She was about to have a child. And when she heard that the ark of God was taken, her father was dead. And her husband was dead. Father-in-law was dead. And her husband was dead. She bowed herself and travailed, and the pains came upon her. She had a son, but when the son was born, she didn't want anything to do with it. But she named the son Ichabod which means the glory has departed. And so the final benediction of this battle is stated very clearly in verse 22. She said, the glory is departed from Israel for the ark of God is taken. Not the way Israel wanted it to turn out. That was not their plan. They ended up failing. And their pursuit of the ark to give them victory did not work. They ended up losing the battle, and the ark was taken. So we come to the fourth thing, the crisis, the choice they made, the consequences of that choice, and what was the cause of the failure. We've got three things very quickly that I want to mention. Number one is there was a misdirected focus. When Israel lost that first battle to the Philistines, what was their focus? They said, "Together and said, we've got to figure out a way to beat the Philistines. The Philistines are our enemy, and we've got to win the, win the victory over them. We've got, to, we've got to destroy them." That was where their focus was. It's misdirected. That's not where it should have been second thing misplaced fear when i say misplaced fear what i mean is it wasn't there it was it was it was lost somewhere they didn't have any fear you would think that if they're going into battle with the philistines and the philistines have already beaten them one time and they're they're facing them again you would think that they would be maybe afraid of the philistines or whatever but but verse number 5 said when the ark of the covenant of the lord came into the camp all israel shouted with a great shout so that the the so that the earth rang again when the ark came in they said oh man we got it now everything's going to be great there's not going to be any problem the ark is here we've got this we're going to win this battle there was no fear they went into it without any fear the the Philistines had more sense than the Israelites did because the Philistines were afraid. And who were the Philistines afraid of? They said the ark is coming to the camp of Israel. We haven't seen this before. You know, the God who who Israel worships, he's the one who's responsible for all the plagues in Egypt. He is a powerful God. And the Bible says in verse number number 6, uh, it says they understood the ark was coming in the, ha- and, and the camp, verse 7, and the Philistines were afraid for they said, God is coming to the camp. The problem is that God wasn't there. The ark was there, but God wasn't there. And that brings me to the third, third problem, third, third problem, third thing that caused this, this situation was, was misdirected focus, misplaced fear, and the third thing was misguided faith. Did Israel have faith? Absolutely, they did. But what was their faith in? Their faith was in the ark. Now, I said earlier the ark is a was a sacred, a sacred piece of furniture. But they were not. The, 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 there's nothing in Scripture that said that anyone was supposed to worship the ark. It doesn't say that we're supposed to that they were supposed to assume that the ark was the source of their strength or their victory. I mentioned earlier that it's not enough to know what the word of God says or even to have it memorized. You can't just quote a verse and then you have power to overcome whatever problem you have. You have to apply that verse in your life and where does the power come from for that verse to be affected in what you're dealing with it doesn't come from, from the book it comes from the God that the book talks about we are not to and this is it's, I don't I mean this to sound sacrilegious and I, and I, don't, I don't want you to, to misunderstand what I'm saying but we're not to worship scripture we're supposed to worship the God of Scripture. We're not supposed to, to, to depend upon Scripture to provide the power that we need to overcome the battles that we face. The Scripture gives us the information we need to find the power, and it's found in the God that it talks about. But our faith, the faith that we need to be what God wants us to be, needs to be focused on our God. You know, people think they come to church and, and because they're in church, everything's going to be great. It's not, it's not church. It's the God that we're talking about in church that needs to be the focus. Our fear needs to be in related, related to the God that we worship. Our God is a holy God. He's a just God. He is a righteous God. And we ought to fear him. Part of the problem we have in America today, even in our churches, is that those who call themselves believers have gotten to the place where they no longer fear God. They, they, they use his name in a way that, that demonstrates that they think he's common. You know, they put, put slogans on t-shirts, things go better with Christ. That's kind of a, uh, uh, um, a common way to refer to the God who created the universe the all powerful, the sovereign God of eternity we ought to have respect for him and we ought to have fear for him he's our heavenly father and he loves us so we don't have to cower but we ought to, we ought to have a, a, a very healthy respect for who God is our focus needs to be on our God our fear needs to be of our God not the enemy but of God our focus doesn't need to be on the enemy our focus needs to be on the Lord you know if israel had prayed before they made that choice and said lord what what should we do if they if they had sought god's will instead of the box that god lived in then they may have had a better a better result but their faith needed to be in the god of eternity now, the rest, the rest of the story, beginning in verse number 5, Samuel's not mentioned in all of this. Chapter 5, the Bible says, The Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer unto Ashdod. And this is, to me, is one of the most interesting stories in all of Scripture. The Bible says, When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. Verse number 2. Verse number 3. And when they of Ashdod arose early on the morrow, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. And they took Dagon and set him in his place again. How would you, how would you like to, to know that your God couldn't get up on his own? I mean, he fell to the ground, and so I, it went in there. So, oh, what, what are you doing down there? And so they reached over and picked him up and put him back up in his place. The next morning they came in and there was a different result. Verse number four. And when they arose early on the morrow morning, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off upon the threshold. Only the stump of Dagon was left to him. Talk about being disappointed. Your God fell off of his prop in the middle of the night? And his head fell off, and his hands fell off, and all you got left is a stump? <laughs> well, the Philistines understood, man, we're, we're in way over our head here. We don't need to hang on to the ark. And so they said, we got we to get rid of it. And the rest of, of chapter 5 tells about all the places they took it and what they suffered as a result of having the ark in their presence. So chapter 6 the Bible says the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months and they called the priest and the diviners saying what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us where we we shall send it to his place. And they said send away the ark of God to Israel but don't send it empty. You got to send a gift with it to appease the God who is you know is responsible for all this going on. And so it goes on, and they made a cart, made a new cart. They put it on the cart, and then they they decided to try this to see if all this stuff that happened were just a coincidence, or was was this really related to the ark? And so they said, verse number eight: Take the ark of the Lord, lay it upon the cart, put the jewels in of gold, which are are uh, upon uh, which ye return him for a trespass offering, in a coffer on the side thereof, and send it away that it may go, and see. If it goeth by the way of his own coast of Beth Shemesh, then he hath done this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that smote us. It was a chance that happened to us. So they said, let's see which way it goes. And the ox took off and it went right up the coast, right up to Beth Shemesh. It's obvious that God was the one who did it. The men of Beth Shemesh were not very smart. We're told in verse number 19 that they decided to look into the ark to see what was in there. The Bible says they looked into the ark and God smote of the people 50,000 and three score and ten. 50,070 people died because they looked into the ark. In verse number 21, they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirjath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought again the ark of the Lord. Come down and fetch it up to you. Come get it. And so they did, and it was in Abinadab's house. Now, seven months it was in Israel, I mean in with the Philistines. Now look at this. We find in verse 1 of chapter 7, The men of Kirjath-Jerim came, fetched up the ark of the Lord, brought it in the house of Abinadab in the hill and sanctified Eliezer's son to keep the ark of the Lord. It came to pass while the ark abode in kirjath Jearim, that the time was long for it was 20 years and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Okay, so this battle happens. Eli and Hothni and Phinehas all die. The ark is taken and it's almost 21 years later. And all of a sudden, Samuel shows up again. Look at verse number 3. And Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If ye do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange God and Ashtaroth from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Verse 4. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth, and serve the Lord only. And Samuel said... Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray for you unto the Lord. And they gathered to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. This time, things are different. They're not talking about the enemy. Their focus is on the Lord. We find out later that fear comes back in, but they obviously fear the Lord here. They fear the Philistines too, but they fear the Lord. And the third thing is their faith has changed. Now they're not trusting the ark or some other object. They're trusting God. And you'll notice the Bible says that they gathered to Mizpah. they warped, drew water and poured it out before the Lord, fasted on that day and said, we have sinned against the Lord. Verse number seven. And when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel were gathered together to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. When the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. The children of Israel were afraid of the Philistines. But look at verse eight. And the children of Israel said to Samuel, cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us that he will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. I want to remind you what they said back in verse 3 of chapter 4. The people were come up unto the camp. The elders of Israel said, Wherefore, the Lord smitten us this day before the Philistines, let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of the enemies. Verse 8 of chapter 7, Cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us, that he will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. In other words, they got, their, they got their thinking straight about where their help was going to come from. The Bible says, verse number 9, Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it for a burnt offering holy unto the Lord. And Samuel cried unto the Lord for Israel, and the Lord heard him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel, but the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day upon the Philistines and discomforted them, and they were smitten before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and smote them until they came unto Bethkar. And Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, And here it is, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Does the Lord want to help us? Absolutely He does. Do you need the Lord to help us? Do we need the Lord to help us? Absolutely we do. Are we willing to keep our focus right? Keep our fear right? Keep our faith right? So that God can help us? That is what the focus of revival needs to be. Focus on God. Not the enemy. Let's focus on the Lord. Let's remember who He is. And let's trust Him to do the work. Because revival comes from God. It doesn't come because of the meeting. It doesn't. We, we come, we enjoy the fellowship. But that's not revival. Revival is when God does a work in our heart to change us, to make us more like Him. Let's make sure our focus is right, our faith is right, and our fear is right. And God will do great things for us. Let's stand together with that.